Welcome to this podcast. I'm Jill Cook, Deputy Editor of BJSM. Today we have Associate Professor Kay Crosley with us, who is an expert in a range of fields, but perhaps best known for her work in patellofemoral pain. BJSM has recently published the consensus paper from the third International Patellofemoral Research Retreat, and this can be found in the March issue of this year with Kay as an author. Welcome, Kay. Thanks, Jill. It's my pleasure to be here. Could you tell me if there's anything new in rehabilitation for patellofemoral pain? And what's the current evidence for best practice? Well, Jill, we've known for some time now that the best available evidence for um, treatment of patellofemoral pain is that multimodal therapy, which is a combination of vast eye retraining, hip muscle retraining, patellar mobilization and taping, is effective for the treatment of patellofemoral pain. But similar to other conditions, other musculoskeletal conditions, we know that these positive outcomes that we see at a group level are not necessarily experienced by all participants in a trial. And we also know now that these positive benefits are not necessarily maintained over a longer period of time. So even though we do have some positive um, effects of physiotherapy for patellofemoral pain, The findings of the research reflect what we see clinically, which is that patellofemoral pain is a persistent musculoskeletal condition with a tendency to recur. The recent evidence that I've read has suggested that the hip and perhaps the trunk are equally as important to the knee, and you mentioned there that it's multimodal and should include all of that, and, and taping as well. Do we have any idea of which of these might be the most important in patellofemoral pain? Yeah, look, that's a good question, Jill. I think that, um, as I said to you, the the evidence really supports multimodal treatment. Um, Studies that have tried to compare head-to-head one intervention with another are much less clear because obviously both interventions tend to have an effect. We know that patellar taping is still being used. Um, It's effective for pain relief and we have many studies that show us that. But using it alone as a standalone treatment is not as effective and so most recommendations would be to use patellar taping as an adjunct to treatment perhaps it's something the patients can use at home to manage their symptoms or you can use it clinically to try and help them decrease their pain in order to um, continue with their exercise program um, hip muscle strengthening we've known for a while now that it's been that hip muscle function is impaired in people with patellofemoral pain and there are quite a few new recent randomized controlled trials that have looked at hip muscle retraining and shown that if you retrain the hip muscles if you improve the strength or their function then you can reduce the pain but we're not seeing any positive benefits of hip muscle retraining over knee muscle retraining for example so, so this is often thought to be a condition of adolescent girls, but are there other subgroups of sufferers? And if so, which group does the best and which should we be a little bit more wary of as clinicians? Adolescent girls are prone to getting patellofemoral pain and it's fair to say that right now we have almost no evidence for um, managing adolescent girls or adolescent people, whether they be girls or boys. And it is an area that most researchers have have stayed away from, I suppose, because of the difficulties in treating those people. Um, But um, a PhD student in Denmark, Michael Rathleff, has recently completed a randomised control trial, and I think his data are going to be published soon. So we should have some evidence to help us guide the treatment of adolescents um, with patellofemoral pain. But in addition to those I think the problem at the moment is we don't know which people are more or less um, likely to respond to treatment. And there is a lot of um, 
I suppose, trend or interest in trying to work out subgroups of people with different phenotypes, if you like, whether it be weak muscles or whether they be inflexible or whether they have different um, pain perceptions and trying to see whether we can see which of those groups are less likely to respond to the interventions that we currently are testing and maybe look at developing new interventions for those subgroups of people. Were there any thoughts from the consensus meeting about pain behaviour, pain centralisation and the role of particularly persistence of patellofemoral pain? Look, I think it's quite surprising that even though there's been a lot of research into patellofemoral pain over the years, a very little of that research is actually focused on the pain systems. Um, and we know that um, altered pain perceptions and pain centralization are features of other musculoskeletal conditions, you know, back pain, tendinopathy, knee osteoarthritis. But certainly at the most recent retreat, we have heard about um, some local hyperalgesia, so lower pr pressure pain thresholds in adolescents with patellofemoral pain. And there is some more research being done in this area, and I think this is going to be one of the new innovations in patellofemoral pain research over the next few years is going to be a greater focus on looking at some of these pain mechanisms, particularly in people with persistent pain, and um, trying to, again, identify perhaps the subgroup of people that have these altered pain mechanisms and might respond better to different interventions. So if we accept that there might be some central uh, sensitisation or issues, what do you think the local drivers of pain are in patellofemoral pain? Yeah, and again, that's another great question, Jill, and something that um, researchers have been agonising over for a long time, as they have in many musculoskeletal conditions. We know that a lot of the structures around the patellofemoral joint don't have the capacity to generate nociception. We know that the fat pad does, and we think that that is... Um, a driver of a lot of the, the nociception we see in patellofemoral pain and the synovitis that can occur alongside any sort of fat pad inflammation or irritation. But I think what we're seeing mostly now is research looking also at the bone as being a driver of the nociception. There's stuff, um, this research coming out of um, older people with osteoarthritis looking at bone marrow lesions in the patellofemoral joint and showing an association with um, altered patellofemoral alignment. Um, and there's also some modelling work that's been done in the US looking at um, increasing bone strain in people with patellofemoral pain. So clearly there's a lot more research to be done, but I think um, much of that as we get more imaging studies in patellofemoral pain, we'll be looking particularly at the bone and also at the fat pad. This next question is a little close to my heart and from a patella tendon perspective, it can be a struggle, but how difficult do you think differential diagnosis is of anterior knee pain? And do we get it wrong as clinicians? I think we get it wrong as clinicians and I think we get it wrong as researchers. I think clearly they're both part of the patellofemoral complex. I mean, the tendon is intimately related with the patellofemoral joint and, and vice versa. I think we have some very simple um, both symptoms and signs that we look for in terms of the activities that might aggravate a patient's pain or the jumping, landing, dynamic tasks associated with tendinopathy and the, some of the less dynamic tasks, going up and down stairs and going up and down hills, rising from seating. But you'll be well aware, Jill, that those activities also aggravate people with tendinopathy as well. And so we're then down to looking at where is the pain? Is it local as we suspect in tendinopathy or is it more diffuse? 
as we generally see in patellofemoral pain. Um, but you've treated many patients, I've treated many patients, we've both done many studies, and I think we both know that it does overlap a lot. Um, and I think also aspects of the treatment overlap a lot in terms of unloading, if necessary, early on, and then a graduated loading program. And maybe it's only at the high end that it really changes a lot, I'm not sure. Mm, it's an interesting perspective. Now, the next couple of questions are really for the clinicians out there. How important is it to address issues of pronation or, or foot posture in managing patellofemoral pain? There wasn't a lot of evidence for pronation um, and its relationship with patellofemoral pain, and there certainly wasn't a lot of evidence for um, interventions to change pronation, such as orthotics for patellofemoral pain for quite a few years. Recently, there's been a large randomised control trial conducted by Natalie Collins, and that was published in BMJ in 2008. And she found that foot orthoses were effective in reducing pain in people with patellofemoral pain, either alone or in combination with a multimodal physiotherapy treatment. So there is some evidence that foot orthotics um, change pain in patients with patellofemoral pain, but we're still unsure exactly how they work. So they're working by changing foot pronation or whether they're working by other mechanisms such as changing proprioception, motor control or any of the other mechanisms that can be related to pain. But more recent studies are also looking at, um, at foot posture, looking at changes in foot mobility, so how the foot widens or splays as we go from non-weight bearing to weight bearing. But we're also finding that some of these foot mobility measures are also predictors of outcome with foot orthoses. So even though there's been a gap in the literature relating to foot pronation and patellofemoral pain, I think it's fair to say that at the moment um, there's more research being done. Um, but back to your original question, Jill, as to which patients or whether we should as clinicians look at foot pronation, I think we should look at it as part of the whole kinetic chain. And I would use a foot orthosis. If I had a patient who was having difficulty doing some weight-bearing retraining exercises, then I would think about putting an orthotic in and seeing if it increased their capacity to put more load through their patellofemoral joint if they have a foot orthotic. So I tend to use more of a pragmatic clinical reasoning approach to the use of foot orthoses and foot pronation than perhaps how many degrees of rear foot eversion they might have. Thanks, Kay. That's a really helpful response for clinicians. But I know that the next question the clinician might think about is, what about vastus medialis and lateralis? Do we need to worry about one in preference to the other or are they both affected in patellofemoral pain? And should we be just addressing the quadriceps? I think as time goes on, Jill, we are seeing that the quadriceps themselves are really integral to patellofemoral pain and to the recovery of patellofemoral pain and probably to the persistence of patellofemoral pain. So there's absolutely no doubt that patients do need to have great function of their quadriceps. For some of those people, they really need to focus specifically on their vastus medialis because that muscle has been preferentially weakened or inhibited over the vastus lateralis. So it won't be the case for all patients, but certainly for some patients, they do need to focus on at least activating the vastus medialis and making sure it is active whenever they're doing quadriceps related activities. So any sort of knee extension um, work. I noticed that you've been involved in some really great research about patellofemoral pain after ACL reconstruction. Do you think that this is greatly underestimated and where should we go as clinicians in a rehab program if it is a problem? 
Um, that's right, Jill. We have been looking at patellofemoral osteoarthritis after ACL reconstruction. My interest was um, sparked a few years ago when some work came out of Scandinavia looking at the prevalence of patellofemoral OA after ACL reconstruction. And there were two studies that came out and they both looked at people who'd had a um, patella tendon autograph and it makes sense in some ways that if you are taking a part of the patellofemoral complex then it could be at risk of, of developing osteoarthritis. So we undertook a preliminary study in people who'd had a hamstring tendon autograph and looked at them between five to ten years after their ACL reconstruction and um, all by the same surgeon. And we did find that the prevalence of patellofemoral OA was nearly 50%. And these are young people who are only seven years after their reconstruction. And it was much higher than the prevalence in, in the tibiofemoral joint. And we're continuing that research now um, with Adam Colvener as the PhD student, looking at people much earlier on in, in, the, um, in the recovery after their ACL reconstruction. So, in terms of why do people get patellofemoral OA after ACL reconstruction with a hamstring tendon graft, I mean, there's a whole lot of potential reasons. Um, the biomechanics of the knee is disrupted with an ACL reconstruction and that is not um, restored with, sorry, with an ACL injury, which is not restored with a reconstruction. And perhaps some of those kinematic changes, in particular external tibial rotation compared to the femur, could be one of the drivers of increasing patellofemoral joint stress. We talked before about um, differential activation in the, the medial and the lateral um, vasti, and if, if they do have pain and, and swelling, and we know that those two things can inhibit the vastus medialis, then perhaps that could also alter the tracking of the patellofemoral joint, which over time could lead to some development of patellofemoral OA. These are obviously all theories and things that we are now trying to address with our research. But I think until we address those, I think clinicians at least need to start looking at the patellofemoral joint. They need to be saying, where is the source of our patient's pain? What activities are aggravating them? And start to um, put a focus on patellofemoral joint in their rehab, in addition to the other things that they need to do in order to get a patient to return back to their activity, for example. Thanks, Kay. That's really interesting and it's something that I think many clinicians won't be thinking about with their ACL reconstruction patients. So if I could put a summary around patellofemoral pain, could I suggest that there are a lot of uh, interventions that will reduce pain in the short term but not much that really has an effect in the long term and that perhaps this is a pain condition as much as a uh, morphological condition. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're beginning to understand that it is a chronic pain condition and that it is something that people may have for the rest of their lives. And so we do need to try and address their pain and you're correct, there are a number of different interventions that have been shown to reduce pain in patients with patellofemoral pain. But I think what we're hoping to show over time or what we're hoping to find over time is that maybe we can change the natural history by things like getting people stronger, changing the way they move with some gait retraining programs. So perhaps it's not something that they have to suffer for the rest of their lives. Although perhaps it is something that they will need to continue to work on for the rest of their lives. So they may need to always maintain good quadricep strength, maintain good hip strength, maintain good alignment of their whole lower extremity and kinetic chain, not just their patellofemoral joint. And I think that's what we're thinking might be the case in the long run. Sounds awfully like tendon rehabilitation. 
Thanks, Kate. Look, I'm really grateful for your insights and I'm sure your research will continue to enlighten practitioners about this common problem. Thanks for your time. 